What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Mike Paletta. And, um, hey, Mike. How you doing? Good, good, How's good. everybody out there? Good. Thanks, folks, for uh, for joining. we got uh, Scotty Damron once again. I see you there. The Reefer. Greg Carroll is joining us again. Um, folks, this is going to be a great show, and um, let me introduce Mike. I, he probably doesn't need a, uh, an introduction here, but I'm going to do it anyway, Mike. So so Mike has been keeping reef tanks for many, many years. I think in the 80s is when you started, right? 1984. 1984, okay. Yep. I bought my first bubble coral in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for $99. <laughs> 99 bucks. Wow, that's a lot of money yep. back then. That was a lot of money. And I kept it alive for about six years. Well, that, you got a pretty good return on your investment. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so Mike is an icon in the reef keeping hobby, and he's written a ton of articles for many publications, including Aquarium Fish Magazine, Sea Scope, Practical Fish Keeping, Ultramarine, Aquarium Frontiers, Coral Magazine, and Freshwater and Marine Aquarium. He has also published two books, The New Marine Aquarium and Ultimate Marine Aquariums. Additionally, Mike has been a speaker in many reef keeping conferences in the U.S. and around the world. I'm just scratching the surface here in terms of Mike's bio, so um, he's, uh, I'm, I'm very uh, much honored to have him on the show. He does keep several tanks at home, including a beautiful 500-gallon reef, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about, plus a um, Elos tank behind him, which we could talk about as well. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Always enjoy talking to everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like I said at the beginning, this is, uh, is going to be a great show. And I've got a bunch of questions, but we're going to certainly encourage questions from the viewers, and we'll, and, and we'll uh, kind of hop back and forth between that. Um, so, Mike, we, uh, we, we, we talked about in terms of you starting reef keeping in, in 1984. How did, how did it all start for you in terms of getting into the reef keeping hobby? What led you to this? What? Yeah, I had fish literally since I was five years old, Tank, and I had always liked fish. And then in the uh, 60s and 70s, my dad got me Jacques Cousteau's Life and Death in the Coral Sea, and it was the first book that had pictures of what a reef looked like. And as soon as I saw that book, I knew that was what I wanted to have someday. But obviously no one was having reef tanks, and saltwater tanks were, you'd go into a store, and as soon as you said you wanted to do a saltwater tank, the first words out of their mouth were, no, you don't want to do that. It's too difficult. And those were the days of undergravel filters and bleached corals. And in 1980, I won a 55-gallon tank in a poker game, <laughs> and I set it up as my first saltwater tank. Yeah. <laughs> That's when it so 55-gallon tank cost about 20 bucks then. And I set it up with the bleached coral and everything. And then whenever I got home from graduate school, I, uh, my father had been in Germany. He brought me back a book called The uh, Modern Marine Aquarium by Jürgen Lemkemeyer. Uh, I translated that from German into English. I didn't speak German, but I got a German dictionary, and I had a couple of German doctors that I called on, and they helped me translate it, and I started doing what they were saying. They had uh, trickle filters. They had uh, algae in the tank. They had this crazy concept of live rock. They had uh, much brighter light than the single fluorescent tube we had on our tank. And they had a, a fair amount of flow in their tank by different means. And I, once I did that, 
and saw the pictures they had, which, I mean, the pictures were nothing to look at. I mean, it was like a leather coral sitting on a rock wrapped around with Calerp all around it, sort of like the George Schmidt uh, articles that came out. So then I uh, basically converted the 55-gallon tank, which was dead coral skeletons, and I started the reef tank. And one of the more interesting things I did was I was trying to find live rock, and no one had a clue about any live rock. And there was a guy in Hawaii who was collecting, quote-unquote, invertebrates and shipping them in. And I asked him if he could get me some pieces of rock under water, live rock. And he goes, what do you want that junk for? I said, well, that's how I'm building the basis of the reef tank I want to do. He said, okay. He shipped it over. It had the most brilliant red zoanthids with blue centers that I have never seen since. They were all about as big as my index finger. This is the basis of my live rock that I started the first tank with. That's that's amazing in terms of what uh, it used to be like. But I mean, you were a true fr um, you know frontier in terms of the pioneer in terms of the uh, the reef keeping um, you know keeping a reef tank. I mean that uh, <clears throat> in in terms of live rock and having that shipped and and what have you. Did they ship it in uh, in water or did they wrap it in newspaper? They wrapped it in wet newspaper. Oh really? But it all made it here. And I mean, it was there was no smell. I mean, I, I did the typical cycling and it was so good. It uh, there was no real cycle. I mean, I, I they shipped it. I picked it up right at the thing. I mean, it was probably 14 hours in the air and it was still as fresh as when they packed it. So you and I were talking about this before the uh, before the show started. I remember um, a few years ago here and your experience with with starting up a tank with dry rock only and. I had a um, I had experience that was similar to your bad experience in terms of doing that. Can can you um, just for the folks that don't know about your experience with the dry rock versus the live rock, just kind of explain what happened? Yeah, this is uh, the Elos tank. It's been set up now for I think five years. It's a uh, SPS non-acro SPS tank, so it's different. And it was started off when I initially did it. I wanted to do it following the Triton method and starting with dead rock. I wanted to see if you could do that. And for as long as it had been set up, I put the bacterial cultures in. I tried to get things going. I would put a coral in, a frag from downstairs that was doing real well. I had a 300 down there at the time. I would put it in. The corals would sit there. They would never really grow. They would never really encrust. And after about six to eight weeks, they would just fizzle and die. And they did this time after time after time. At the same time, Sanjay was setting up a tank in State College. He was doing something similar to this tank behind me now, where he was setting up a Montipera tank. He would grow cyanobacteria. He would get dinoflagellates. He would get everything else. But the corals never really thrived. And at the time, we had no idea what was going on because the tanks looked different. They were having different response. I then went to uh, Europe to give a couple of talks in Italy and in England. And I, in the, at the uh, talk in Italy... There were a bunch of Germans there, too. We all got to talking, and we were all having the same kind of problem. And that's when it like dawned on all of us. The problem is the live rock, but actually the dead rock. It just doesn't have the microfauna. It doesn't have the bacterial cultures. It doesn't have the sponges. It doesn't have all the things necessary to get the tank going. So when I came back, I took some of the chunks of live rock from the downstairs tank and put them in here. I talked to Sanjay. He did the same thing with his tank. The tanks did better. But this tank is still has never thrived like any of my other tanks. The corals in this tank consume so much less alkalinity than the tanks downstairs. Even though it's packed full of corals, they just don't grow as rapidly as they do downstairs. Everything else is basically the same. Salinity is the same. 
uh, phosphate levels, nitrate levels, alkalinity, calcium, magnesium. I mean, they're all, from my point of view, in the perfect range, and I just don't get anything to grow here. And as I was talking to you, I'm very seriously considering getting a bunch of live rock, real live rock, curing it, taking this tank apart again, which I just did whenever I reread the floors down here, and starting all over again. Because this tank is just driving me nuts, <laughs> and it has literally since I started it. Yeah, no, I had a, uh, I had a similar experience about um, five years ago. I started my 187-gallon tank with dry rock only, and it was just one problem after another. I had dinos, I had a bacterial bloom, I had cyano outbreak. Um, I never had these issues before in any of my live rock tanks. And, you know, I, I would fight through them. I would do some blackouts and, and I would, um, you know, put some chemicals in there to try to combat, uh, you know, the dinos and this, that, and the other thing. And it just really stressed a lot of things out. I mean, I, you know, I was able to grow corals and whatnot, but not nearly what I was used to in terms of my, uh, you know, past tanks. So it was frustrating. And I ended up breaking that tank down. I, I did break that tank down. And I just um, let it stay dry for, for a couple of weeks, and I rebooted it. And I was down in Florida for a vacation, and I uh, was able to find some Haitian live rock down there at a, at a local uh, fish store. So I brought back with me on the plane about 125 pounds of Haitian live rock. And uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, I, am, I had sticker shock because it cost me about 400 bucks to take the rock with me on the plane. And, and uh, Yeah. Above and beyond the cost of the rock that yeah, you bought. Yeah, so yeah. So it, um, but you know, the tank has been thriving since. But l let's 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 say this, and uh, I know there's a, a few people watching Greg Carroll <laughs> that have had a lot of success starting tra uh, tanks with with dry rock only. So, what what do you think has been different for those tanks that have had success versus others like ourselves that have not had success starting a dry rock only tank? Is it just giving it a lot of time? Is it patience? What, I mean, what, what, what's your theory? I think that, that's part of it. I mean, I gave it three months to cure and before I put anything in it. So I was very patient, but I don't think I put in as much microfauna and bacterial cultures and sponges because that for me, what I have learned the hard way is until the sponges start to thrive in a tank, the corals don't really start to take off for whatever reason, sponge, uh, success is a good indicator of how well the tank's going to do. If you have sponges growing in the cryptic regions and in spaces and everywhere, my tanks have done better when I have sponges than when I don't have sponges. Like the sunlight tank has those crazy purple sponges that look like uh, plates of um, Montipora. Those things grow as big as Frisbees. I have to cut them down to nothing and three months later I got another Frisbee. And those corals in that tank and the fish as well go nuts. Here, I've put these purple sponges in three times. The sponges die. I, I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that tank, they're a weed. If I put them downstairs, they're a weed. In this tank, they just don't take off. So there's something in here. And I've done ICP tests. And the only the problem I had uh, a year ago is they found that it had an excessive amount of tungsten in the tank. Tungsten. I was using a high-end heater. And the heater never had to come on because the tank stays at 77 degrees without a heater. But somehow the heater had managed to crack. And over the course of the year, it had leached tungsten into the water. So I did a massive water change. I put in uh, uh, Julian's uh, Metazorb. I put in uh, 
the Chemipure metal absorbers, and I put in uh, uh, what are the, the white pads, uh, poly filters. Yep. I did that for four months and finally got all the tungsten out when I sent it back in for an ICP test. And then I started putting corals back in, and they've done well. They just haven't taken off like they have in the other tanks still. So there's, there's always residual problems in this tank. So you're thinking of a true reboot in terms of the rock for that tank? Yeah. Hmm. I'm not looking forward to that, but at this point, fortunately, the other tanks are all kind of on uh, easy time, so it's not a big deal. And doing a 120 after you do a 500 is like a piece of cake. Yeah. So I'm assuming for the 500, you started that with a live rock that you had? Yeah, I, I used basically all the 500, all the rock I had in the 300. Yeah, right. And I put in uh, four pieces of dead rock. Uh, the, the flat plate stuff just to add a little bit more surface because I never have enough space for corals. So, but that, that tank has had no problems for the most part. It, it's had some problems. I've had dinoflagellates and I've had cyano. So anytime you reboot a tank, you can guarantee you're going to get those kind of problems at some point. What did you do to uh, solve the dino, uh, the, the dino problem and the cyanobacteria problem? What, um... the, the cyano problem, I just did a lights out for uh, three days and that took care of that. And for the dinos, I added a 120-watt uh, UV sterilizer, and that took them out. Right. I've, um, I've heard people had success using UV at night and um, also upping their uh, nutrients, trying to, like, not, not be ultra-low nutrient system. Right. I don't, I don't run low nutrients. I'm a firm believer that you've got to provide energy and food for the corals. So I keep my uh, nitrates at around 5 to 10, and the phosphates 0 0.05 to 0 0.08. Uh, last May, I talked to 20 of the people that have really what I consider really spectacular tanks and got all their parameters and everything that they're doing. And over the course of the past six, seven months, when we've still had an infinite amount of free time, I did a, a more thorough analysis of who had the best colored corals and why. And I found that those people that had the best colored corals had a ratio of 50 to 1 or higher of nitrate to phosphate. Mm. It didn't really matter what their levels were because a couple of them had relatively high levels of phosphate. It was more uh, a factor of what the ratio of nitrate to phosphate was. And they all said that if their nitrates came down too low, they started losing color and they started losing the, the overall health of the corals. So it seemed to be critical to keep it that way once they'd gotten it to that point. 50 to, uh, 50 to 1? 50 to 1 or 100 to 1. Right, right, right. A couple right. of the people that I, I spoke to, I, I can't share their names because I guaranteed everyone anonymity so that everyone would share their stuff because a lot of them compete with each other yeah. to sell coral. Yeah. So uh, probably five of them had a 100 to 1 ratio of uh, nitrate to phosphate. Yeah, I, I try to keep that ratio also because I, I grow uh, Cato in a refugium, and I know that's, um, that's a good ratio for that to, um, you know, in terms of the nitrates to the phosphate. So, so Mike, we have a question from uh, Juan Melendez. And it's a live rock question or a dry rock question. I live close to the ocean. Can I place my dry rock in a mesh bag and place it in the ocean to seed it? That's a pretty good idea. I, as long as you don't have any pollutants that may be absorbed into the rock, you should be fine because most of the rock's relatively inert, so it, it shouldn't. But that would be a good idea to do. Yeah, that would be nice. And I would have a, a really open mesh bag so anything relatively you know, bigger than your pinky can get in there. Yeah, that'd be nice to live right next to the ocean with a reef tank. Yeah, yeah for sure. What do you, what do you think about the um, the with the dry rock the these negative space aquascapes out there? These incredible structures that people spend weeks on doing, and um, 
Bulk Reef Supply featured him. I know uh, Tidal Gardens has, has yeah. done that sort of thing. What do, what do you think about those uh, aquascapes? And I'll, I'm going to give you my opinion before. Well, you go ahead, and I'll, I'll give you my opinion afterwards. I think they look nice. They look aesthetically nice. But the problem I see with them, over time, the corals are going to get so big, they may start pulling things over, pulling things off, and they don't really look, to me, like a, a reef. I mean, I, I've, I've been a big advocate that a, a reef tank is not a reef, per se. It's not even a small portion of what a reef actually is. Because, I mean, it's it's ridiculous to think that way. But aesthetically, I'm looking for something that looks something like I've seen in the ocean, even if it's a small section. What I would prefer to see, and what if I ever did another tank, but I've sworn I'm done, I've done my last tank, the 500 is it. If I was going to do one more tank, it would be like a 300-gallon tank with four corals in it, a giant table, a giant stag, a big bushy coral, and something else, and I would have a school of orange antheus and a school of green chromis, and that would be it. That, to me, would be like the ultimate reef tank. And I've seen a couple Europeans do those kind of tanks, and they were as spectacular as mine, which I'm a collector of 8 million corals, or a lot of us are collectors of little tiny corals. They just had big colonies with fish acting natural, and it's a really impressive way to do it. A reef tank. It's also not expensive to do that. Yeah, no, I, I tell you, it um, it's true. It looks like a mature reef, and um, I I have I have some decisions to make in my tank because in my 187 gallon tank, I've got a two foot long Cali torp that is um, okay. that is really um, you know elbowing a lot of corals out of the way, but I love it because it's just got that natural yeah. look, and I've got a a tub stiletto montipora that's probably like 18 inches across, and it's just. But it's also choking out the tank in terms of the circulation. So, and I can see there's other corals that are getting smothered. You know, so it, yeah. it, it's tough. I mean, and I also know that you like to keep a lot of corals in your tanks, right? In, in terms of... Oh, yeah. A lot of corals, a lot of fish, and a lot of flow. What, um, so in, in, in terms of um, how many pounds of rock do you have um, in, in the 500? There's probably 400 pounds. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Everything's built on fiberglass rods, and there's boulders up, and then it splits out, and then they sort of hold on to one another. And in that way, I, ha I don't have a lot of rock on rock, and I have a lot of open spaces. I mean, there's a, a lot of areas where the corals can grow cause the and the fish to swim because there's some big fish in the tank, too. Yeah, how many fish are in the tank? I, I don't count because when I start counting, I start losing one or two at a time, so... I never count. There's probably between 40 and 50, but the biggest one is a maculoseps tang that's about eight inches. And then there's a, a big uh, powder blue. Uh, there's a 15-year-old regal angel in there that I've had since I moved into this house. Uh, what else is there? There's a yellow tang. There's a school of antheus. There's a, a pair of uh, rabbit fish. There's a trio of... Uh, uh, trio of Lamarck's angels. There's a pair of flame angels. There's a trio of uh, swallowtail angels, so there's a lot of fish in that tank. I've, there's a pair of uh, green bird wrasses. I have um, always wanted to get a um, well. I've tried, I think, two trios of the the, the Japanese mass swallowtail angel fish. I've tried three females, two separate occasions, hoping that one would turn male. And the last time I tried it, the uh, the largest female killed the smallest female, and then eventually the second female died. So now I'm left with uh, with one, but those are spectacular fish, and and a regal angel fish is probably my favorite fish to have in a in a reef tank, and and I definitely want to have 
another one. I can't put one in the 187 gallon tank because I got a lot of zoanthids. I've got some um, some LPS, and I know that it would just certainly go after. But um, it's not. Gonna, I'm not going to have a lot of LPS in the um, in the new 225 uh, gallon tank. My only hesitation about putting it in a young tank is that um, I would fear that it would be going after some of the uh, the frags versus larger colonies. That has, has yours been a um, model citizen in terms of leaving frags alone in the in the 500? It pretty much leaves frags alone, but I also wouldn't put it in a uh, fresh tank. Because one of the things they tend to love are sponges. And until you have enough sponge growth to make sure it's eating. I mean, for the first probably three years I had this fish, I never saw it eat. But I could, when I'd move rocks around, I'd find sponges and I'd leave them exposed. Next day there was no sponge on the mm. e exposed there. So I know that's what they were eat it was eating. And I have tried to put in three additional regal angels for it to pair up with. It has killed all three oh, of them really? within literally within minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, once I put in two, thinking, okay, out of three, I'm going to get a pair. It killed both of them within 15 minutes. Wow. Well, I guess. What... And I never thought of that fish as a vicious fish. No. And that's actually one of the reasons why I fell in love with uh, reef tanks. In Jacques Cousteau's book, he has a picture of a regal angel and a Moorish idol together. And I was, and it was a Red Sea regal, and that was definitely what I wanted, and that's what I have. They're a spectacular fish, and um, the price has gone up on them a little bit uh, recently. I've been uh, I've been eyeballing them, but I you know it's it's a little too early though I think for for me to uh, be jumping them. Yeah, the price on everything has gone up because the price of freight has gone up from everywhere. Uh, the freight from Indonesia has basically doubled, so because there aren't many flights from Indonesia to the states now. Yeah, like you said, until things get normal and people travel again, freight's high, everything's high, so it's we have time and money, so we aquaculture everything and trade it exactly yeah, well it's 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 definitely good that we have that versus uh the way it used to be in the hobby uh, in terms of all the uh the wild colonies mike what do you um what, what are your thoughts in terms of bare bottom versus sand i think you have a uh, bare bottom for the 500 right all, all my tanks are bare bottom just because i run so much flow if i don't run bare bottom everything tends to pile up in one spot and i end up siphoning it out at some point because it tends to go anoxic at some, you know, when it's eight inches deep all in one corner. So I, what I typically do in most of my tanks is every year I sort of increase the flow in them. Like this tank here has uh, two MP40s on it. Uh, probably next year it's going to be moved up to two MP60s. Just because as the corals grow, they block more flow. Just, uh, like I said, when I talked to the 20 people, uh, the average flow was 50 times the volume of the tank. So they're running a ton right. of flow in their tanks. So you said your rock in the 500 is up on um, a rack or acrylic uh, racks or, or what have you? It's actually on uh, fiberglass, fiberglass rods. rods. I drill through the rock, then put the rock on. Uh, it's on cement blocks that were uh, cured and coated with epoxy, and then they're built up upon. And so do you have um, flow behind the, um, the rock work? I have flow behind the rock work, and I have flow all along the bottom. I have uh, a big pant array on one side that blows all the dirt to the other side. Then I have four gyres and two MP60s on that side, and they try to blow the dirt across the top and into the overflow, because the overflow is on the short side of the tank rather than in the back. So I try to have a gyre going and try to get all those detritus out. And I know it's working. I, I, I've learned the hard way. I have to clean the gyres every three months because of how much gunk accumulates in the tank. But I know it, it does a... a big deal of difference because before I did that I was having to clean out the uh, filters I have uh, fiber or a polyester filters on the overflows 
that I have wrapped around the overflow boxes so it, all the dirt gets sucked under those. Uh, before I cleaned them, I had to clean them every five days. Now I have to clean them every three days. And are you still um, basting your rocks to also get the detritus um, off of the rock? Oh, yeah. work? I, I have a uh, uh, Neo uh, powerhead sitting in there that has a long cord, and I just take it off. I used to do a uh, a uh, maxi, or not a maxi jet, a, uh, oh, what the heck is it? Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. One of the, the, the really powerful pumps, and it was just blowing the frags off like crazy. <laughs> now I have a much more gentle pump, and then areas I can't get to, I go in with a turkey baster and based off around the rocks. Because what I found is with frags especially, a lot of detritus accumulates around the, the dead areas of the frag where nothing's grown, where you've just mounted it. Detritus tends to accumulate there. Then you get cyano. Then you get other problems. Basting it every day or every other day has made a huge difference in, in terms of how fast they encrust and has brought the nutrient levels down. Oh, wow. So you're doing you're basting every other day? Every other day. For a couple weeks, I did every day. Wow just to see if it would make any difference versus every other day. It doesn't make a difference, but it only, it only takes five minutes once you do it every other day versus when you do it once every week, once every two weeks. It was taking me 25, 30 minutes to get every spot and get everything out of there, and it looked like a snowstorm <laughs> in the tank. Now it's just a, a fair amount of detritus, but it's not nearly as bad as it was. We have a question, Mike, from uh, Simulated Reality. How many uh, times a week does Mike feed his corals, and what does he like to feed? I am. I have been feeding three times a week, and I feed a, a mixture of virtually everything that's out there. I have just gotten uh, a phytoplank, two phytoplankton reactors, one with Tetra, one with Nano. I'm growing those. Those are going to replace the prepared foods. And then I just got a rotifer culture, and I'm going to start culturing rotifers and feed them that every day to see what the difference is by feeding phyto and rotifers or just phyto. And see what that does with growth rates. I'm always, uh, always tinkering to see if I can find something better. And I've been wanting to do this since I was in Italy four years ago. There was a guy there that had a 600-gallon uh, tank. It had been up a year. It had all been started from frags, none of which were bigger than this, because their frags are all like an inch, inch and a half, two yeah. inches. In a year, all the colonies were like mm. this big. It was being fed plankton four times a day. Wow. That's the only thing he was doing. He had a, a French angel in there that he got that was this big, in a year it was this big. <laughs> so I have to assume this guy was doing something right, because I've never seen anything. Even Sanji doesn't grow wow. as fast as this wow. guy. Um, have you ever had any issues with cyano or anything else popping up if you overdose coral food? Yeah, significantly. Uh, one of the things I did in December, I was taking a quarter teaspoon of each of the different foods, as well as detritus, and dissolving it in one liter of RODI water and letting it sit overnight and then testing for phosphate. The amount of phosphates in most foods and in yeah. detritus was just mind-boggling. Yeah. Uh, like in a, a quarter teaspoon of the detritus, that the muck I took off the bottom, I let it sit in that one liter of water overnight. When I tested it with the uh, Hawk ultra-low nitrate kit, it was 0.82. Whoa. Wow. That was one... Uh, a quarter teaspoon in one liter of water. Wow. So that was that showed me, okay, that's the reason why I have a bare bottom. That's also why once a week I take the detritus out of the tank because the amount of phosphate that's in it. And I, I did that with a fair number of foods. I'm actually doing an article on what each one did so you can relatively see, okay, this one has a much higher nitrate level or 
phosphate level than this one, but they're all much higher than I would like them to be. How important is it to have a detritus-free tank slash system? I, I don't think it's necessarily detritus-free. I, I think it's more important to ha not have detritus accumulate in a large dead spot. Because uh, once you get that dead spot, it goes anoxic, then you get cyanobacteria, and you get a lot of other bad things when you have a dead zone where, where detritus accumulates. So, like in my tank, this will sound weird, but on the very far end, underneath the gyres, I have a little piece of PVC, like a barrier. So all the detritus that blows across the front accumulates on this wall. So when I want to do a water change or I want to siphon off detritus, all I got to do is siphon along the wall. I try to make it as easy as I can. There's two pieces of live rock that sit on top of it, so you can't see it. But if you lift them up, you see there's always an inch of detritus sitting underneath it, mm. and it, it runs out about four inches. So in the course of a week, that's how much detritus accumulates against this rail. You have a frag tank, right? Yeah. I find that to be a challenge in terms of keeping detritus out of a frag tank, mainly because you know, you're using frag racks, and um, I've tried elevated frag racks, and I've tried you know, power heads underneath those frag racks, but they blow the racks around. Then I've tried shorter frag racks, but you can't get a pump underneath those frag racks. Frag racks, so you just kind of have to crank the uh, the flow up inside of the uh, the frag tank to kind of suspend it. But I do every week pull out my racks and um, suck all the detritus out of the uh, the frag tank. What what do you do in terms of uh, detritus in your frag tank? Once every two weeks, I have them so they all fit in one chamber. I take them all out, turn off the power heads. Siphon and scrape the bottom because the problem is, is I get a ton of uh, coralline algae grows underneath and where the coralline algae seems to hold them. Plus, I, I have the racks mounted on PVC pipes that are drilled through so there's no dead areas, but it still tends to accumulate yeah. anywhere there's a dead spot. So all those get taken out and replaced. The new set goes in and I put the frag racks back in. It, it takes about 20 minutes every two weeks, so it's worth it for me to do that because if I don't do that, after a month, I start growing crazy algaes on the frag racks yeah that's exactly i mean i i do mine every week and it takes maybe like 10 minutes to siphon the stuff out of it and um that's kind of like what's been working and the same yeah. same sort of thing if, if you kind of like just let it be then um you got you gotta have a big problem in terms of uh every possible variety of problematic algae growing on that rack well if i was smarter i would one thing that i saw in an italian system this guy had a frag tank, but the frag tank was beveled. And in the center of the bevels on the bottom, he had a valve. So it would accumulate, the junk would come out of the tank, it'd turn it back on, the tank would fill back up. It was brilliant. I don't know what if he ever got something big got stuck in there, what, he'd have problems. But it was, it was the smartest, easiest way. He, and he looked at me like when I told him what I'm doing. He goes, no, no, no. You just turn a knob, drain it, it's out, takes you a minute. That, so whenever I have more free time, I may uh, get the old uh, glue gun out and uh, some clear PVC and uh, make something beveled. My problem is drilling the bottom. Anytime I drill a tank, eventually it starts to leak. But my frag tank sits above my sump, so it's not a big deal if it leaks, but it would still bother me. It would be a bummer, yeah. I had Richard Ross on the show uh, last week, and he was talking about the right kind of lazy, and it sounds like that guy has um, invented something that is the right kind of lazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, this guy had an had this was a friend of the guy that had the uh, the corals with the plankton. Uh -huh. 
God calls with a plankton had an auto, it was an automatic plankton system where it drew the uh, uh, phytoplankton, it dumped it into the uh, zooplankton, it drained each one out during the course of the day, filled it back up with fresh water, dosed the uh, 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 fertilizer into the tank, started the whole process all over again. Mm. This guy basically did nothing. But I looked at it, it was uh, $2,700 for this system. And I mean, I love my corals, but I'm not spending $2,700 to grow plankton. <laughs> yeah, that seems a little extreme, a little excessive, but, uh, you know. Well, this, this guy also Ferraris in his garage, so I, was, I don't think I was gonna, I was going to say, about the probably it's just uh, some pocket change for him then. Yeah. Um, we have a uh, random question here about vermitid snails. Do you think, uh, oh. Mike, uh, what do you think about killing vermit? This is from Algae Warrior, and he's asking, uh, or she... What about killing vermitid snails with KZ snow? Uh, I, that's, I've been fooling around with that for the past year. I have them down to where they're manageable. Uh, basically, what I found is when I based off the rock, the vermitid snails tend to come out and feed off of the detritus. When I do that, I dump in my own version of KZ snow because you can make it yourself cheaper. Uh, if you look online or you contact me on Facebook, I'll tell you how to make it. Uh, I make up my own. Whenever I see the nail send or the vermitid snails, snails sending out their net, I shoot some of the snow into that area and let them draw it up. That has kept them in check. I also bought a hundred bumblebee mm. snails, and where else, wherever I'm doing the siphoning, I always pick up some of the snails. I drop the snails where I know the vermitids are as well. That's been the only way I've been able to get them controllable doing that before I was just letting them go when I was based in the coral they went nuts then when I started feeding the corals they also went nuts so there, there's a trade-off in anything you do because you'll always grow something good but you always grow something bad probably 10 times faster so you have to take that into account when you're doing that what kind of impact do you think um, you know they have on, on corals and SPS in particular I've, I've had them irritate them and find corals that died underneath their net because the amount of detritus that they deposit on the coral was just enough to kill it because I wasn't fast enough to see that it was there. So that's, what, that's why I do my basting in the first thing in the morning so I can see if there's an issue. I'll see it before the night. If you do it at night, you don't notice it. It's enough to smother a coral over a night. Yeah, that, it's, it's interesting. It's, if, if it's not one thing, it's another, right, Mike? Uh, I, I've literally written two articles called It's Always Something. <laughs> there's always something. And there is always there is. something. Uh, Basically, in talking with everyone, okay, like uh, Sanjay, who I always talk about, because him and I are, are, are relatively pretty close to each other, friendship-wise, age-wise, and everything else. He once uh, had a little bit of extra iodine in his in a bottle, and he's like, oh, okay, I'll just dump it into the tank. Well, that stressed the corals, and stressed the corals so much, they stopped taking up alkalinity. So as alkalinity then spiked. As a result of the alkalinity spike, he then had an STN and RTN outbreak in the tank. When he did that, his phosphate levels also went up because the corals weren't eating. Once he had the phosphate levels go up, he started growing bryopsis in the tank. I mean, it, it's like, you know, one chain ding, reaction. Ding, ding. And all for dumping just, you know, I'm not talking a whole bottle. I'm talking probably an extra 20 milliliters of iodine into the tank. Was, and into a 500-gallon tank was enough to stress it and cause all these other wow. issues. You never know. You never know. No, there's always some, like the tungsten filter in the, the tank behind me. I mean, I put a heater on there because I thought it was going to go. 
Somehow I managed to crack the heater, but it never came on, so I never got electrocuted, never knew it was bad until I'm fooling around in the tank, and all of a sudden I lift it, and just all this falls out. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think we've all had our uh, war stories with with, uh, with tanks. I've done some pretty um... – well, I've done some things that have been my fault. But yeah, you know, there there are a lot of things that can that can happen. You just have no idea. Yeah, you you don't. There's a law of unintended consequences. It happens a lot in our tanks. So, Mike, uh, let's talk about mechanical filtration. So, you talked about Sanjay. He doesn't use any, right? He doesn't use any filter socks for his tanks. He just kind of like lets uh, the water cycle through the uh, the system. What what uh, I, I think yeah, at one point in time. In the sump. Right. Um, and he just cleaned the sump for like the first time in ten years. So it was. I mean, there were several dead bodies there. Uh, I think Joe Paterno might have been in there. He, he took everything out of there, and, and the the tank did do better once he he cleaned it. So wow. all right, well that that must have uh, smelled great. <laughs> yeah, well unfortunately I wasn't there for that. No, like my sump is is set uh, on three bricks high, so when I want to siphon it, it's high enough above I can create a siphon and just draw stuff out of there to get everything out of the sump. Because one section of the sump is the two skimmers I'm running. The other section of the sump is a Calerpa bed and Miracle Mud in trays. So it's real easy to maintain and clean and change. What? So are you using uh, filter socks? I think at one point in time you were, you were um, using some fleece, right? I was using filter socks, but I got tired of taking them apart, flipping them, cleaning them, washing them with a hose, putting them in the washing machine, making sure the washing machine was free of detergent beforehand. So I quit that. Now I use polyester wrapped around uh, 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 what looks like a big plug, and it draws the, the water in. And when it starts off, the water, is, as it fills with dirt, it goes to the top. Once it goes over the top, I know I need to change it. And now I change them every three days, and it's actually I can rinse them out in the kitchen sink with the spray bar, and it's easy. With the filter socks, I had to wash them with a hose outside, even in the wintertime. But that's why I have 100 filter socks. Right. Were you, uh, you were using fleece at one point in time, a, a, a filter roll, right? At one point, were you trying that? Yeah. The On a small tank, it's great. On a 500-gallon tank with large fish and huge quantities where you're blowing detritus off, I mean, it was like, I mean, it was literally constantly running. Right. So, and, and I think the other um, thing that I understand in terms of using fleece or filter rolls is that um, you need to have lower flow versus uh, what you might normally have with the with a um, with filter socks. And you know, yeah, you can't run full throat, full flow there. Right. And so I would think that would be problematic. Although maybe folks have done it successfully with an SPS dominant tank. I've seen all on a hundred. 180 and 240 gallon tanks but once you get up over 300 400 gallons because i first ran one i ran uh, the the D, D one on my uh 300 gallon tank and then i ran uh another one on my 500 gallon tank they, they just can't keep up with the amount of dirt that comes out of that tank let's talk about chemical filtration do you use uh, activated carbon i run carbon for the first week of every month and i run off and on just to keep the the phosphates under uh, 0.1 but that's one of the interesting things I'm looking at is by adding uh, uh, phytoplankton potentially I can absorb some of the phosphate that's in the water have them if I feed it four times a day which is what my plan is if I feed it four times a day I might be able to reduce the phosphate without having to use GFO anymore 
Because right now I'm adding nitrates, but I'm having to reduce the phosphates chemically. But the nitrates I'm having to add. And you also have colopera in your um, sump? And is, yeah. Is, and how, how much weight does that pull on there in terms of pulling nutrients out of the tank, do you think? It pulls some. It doesn't pull as much. The water flow is just too fast across it. Across it. So is the uh, the GFO then your main source of nutrient uh, export in terms of the phosphates and the nitrates, or are you using something else like an algae reactor? That and uh, water changes. I find that by keeping the detritus out and removing it, I've been able to keep the phosphates much better under control. Have you ever used a uh, like an algae reactor or a refugium as a uh, main source well, of nutrient have, export? I have the refugium now, packed like they they were in my past tanks. In the past tanks, you couldn't look through them and see because the calerpa was so thick. Uh, I've tried Cato in here, and it just hasn't done well because it's, the, like I said, the frag top of the sump, so it's hard to get a light that doesn't, isn't going to electrocute me sitting above the calerpa. So I have red light sitting beside it to uh, grow the calerpa, but the Cato didn't like that at all. Let's, um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about pH. And I know I've, I've, I've seen you talk about pH before and... and um you know, you've, you've, you've talked about your own uh, tank in terms of trying to reduce the carbon dioxide and to, uh, to raise the, uh, the pH. Can you talk or, or share your experience in terms of what you've done to try to get your pH up? And, and um, what do you think is the uh, sweet spot for pH for an SPS-dominant tank? For the last part first, to, to me, the sweet spot is 8.1 to 8.3. You don't want to go much over that. You start to have problems. And up until I really got aggressive at managing uh, CO2, my pH would never get over 7.9 in the time. The corals did okay, but they didn't get like they're getting now in terms of growth, how fast they consume alkalinity and calcium. And also we found there's actually a couple articles that show high levels of CO2 in the water is also conducive to growing pathogenic bacteria in the microbiome around the corals. So you want to have a higher pH and a lower CO2 level. So that's what prompted me. I was, I was talking to my friend Andre Mueller. This is where we got to the idea of, okay, room CO2, if you have a, a zillion fans blowing across the surface area of your tank, but you have high room CO2, you're never going to get your pH up. Because he was having the same issues I was, and that we weren't able to get our pH above 8.0. I started filling as many different things as I can. Uh, the easiest is opening the window. Uh, not everyone can open the window. Not everyone doesn't have 10 people in the house and dogs and cats and stuff. Uh, like when we have people over for parties and stuff, I can see that the uh, room CO2, even though it's downstairs and away from us, jumps up dramatically and the pH drops dramatically. So in this regard, what I do now is even in the summer, at night, I crack the window a little bit to let the CO2 from outside come in. And by morning, my CO2 levels are usually around between 400 to 450. Uh, when it's cold out like it is now, they'll stay at around 500 because there's not that much free oxygen out there. But getting a CO2 monitor was crucial to finding out now that I have good room CO2 low, I've also added more flow across the surface area of the tank. So it's drawing in air that has less CO2 in it. And I was running a CO2 scrubber, but that got to be somewhat cost prohibitive because I did that before fooling around with the, the fans and the air. And I was having days. 
And for a 500-gallon tank, that was like a huge canister yeah. of the meat. So that wasn't really good. So then what I did was I now have airlines going down the overflows in the back of the tank. Because my overflows don't run from the tank straight overflow box into the frag tank. They run all the way down to the floor, cross the floor, back up and into the frag tank. Which sounds crazy, but it works. It creates flow, and I, it kept me from having to add two more pumps. Well, that's almost four and a half feet mm. with two lines going down. Well, each of those lines has air lines going in them with uh, uh, wooden air stones, so it pr produces a fine amount of air in them. So as that air goes up, it takes the CO2 that's in the water and just pushes it out of the top. That alone, from 7.9 to 8.1. Well, to get to get it to the higher levels, took me adding the opening the window, and in the summertime when it's too hot to do that, there's a bathroom connected to the downstairs. I'll turn on the bathroom fan, and I'll open the door out to the garage, which is cool and has fresh air in it. It will draw that cool air into there, and that will add uh, reduce the CO2 enough. What What are you seeing now in terms of the winter time? You're, I'm assuming the winters are closed. No, I leave the window open a crack every night. Yeah. What I have are tiles in there that keep the cold air out. And basically, the the room stays at the 72, which is where I want it to be. And the uh, CO2 levels stay, unless I'm working down there for like four or five hours, then it'll creep up over 1,000. But usually, they stay between five and 600 during the day. Yeah, I um, being in Vermont, I uh, I do not crack the windows. I, you know, I have my tanks in a, in a finished basement. So I just had a um, an air exchange unit put in, and it it is um, definitely raised the pH in my tank. I mean, my my 187 gallon tank it's pretty rock solid between uh, like a low of 8.15 and a high of an 8.3. I'm dosing two part, and on my new tank, I don't have any corals in the new tank yet, but it's uh, you know it's hitting a high of like 8.6. Um, pH and yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just starting to run a calcium reactor and I'm sure that's going to uh, certainly push it down. But, um, yeah, I just, I just felt like I needed to get, uh, some fresh air in the room where my tanks are just to try to like elevate the pH. Yeah, it does. It makes a huge difference. I mean, I didn't realize it, it basically increased my alkalinity and calcium consumption by saying. So we have a couple of, um, questions here, Mike, and, and we have a, um, we have another rock question from St. Nova. Please ask Mike what ratio live rock to dry rock he believes negates the issues of the dry rock. I would go at least uh, three to one would probably be my best bet. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a guess, but it also depends on the quality of the live live rock versus the dry rock. I mean, if you have the, the junky live rock that doesn't have anything really on it, it looks like a brick, you probably have to go to a higher ratio. If you have the good live live rock that has the coral in and other stuff growing on it, and sponges and stuff, then you could probably go to a slightly lower ratio. All right. We have another question from um, Macy's daddy. Given Mike is a scientist, are you a scientist, Mike? Or I have a master's degree in psychopharmacology. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> um, has he tested the microbiome in his tank? It may be the future of dealing with many of our tank issues. Yeah, there's actually a uh, company online. Uh, I want to—I can't remember their name—that uh, actually will test the, will culture out all the bacteria that you have in there, 
And people that have had issues with RTN and STN tend to have a lot more Vibrio, particularly Vibrio vulnificus, which, believe it or not, I actually talked about that being a power RTN and STN 20 years ago. And people poo-pooed that idea that it was a bacteria. But they will actually culture out everything and STN issues about a little over a year, 14 months ago. I did sit in one of those cultures, and I did have a higher level of Vibrio than I should in the tank. And that's when I started playing with uh, Witch Hazel to uh, kill that off, and then adding uh, BioDigest and Microbacter 7 and Dr. Tim's and the Tunzi bacteria. I added in as many different cultures of bacteria as I could once I had killed off what I consider the, the bad pathogenic bacteria of Witch Hazel. What does a test like that cost to, to try to determine the good versus the bad bacteria? Uh, if I, I think correctly, I think it was like 60 bucks. It wasn't anything crazy. And is, and is that something that more uh, more reef keepers should be thinking about if they're having RTN or STN issues? Uh, I would. I would send that in an ICP test at the same time. And I would also look at what their pH levels are. I mean, you, you may not have to do it. I mean, if your pH levels are low and you're having STN and RTN issues, then my guess is you probably have a, a high amount of that bacteria and you can... And it's not going to be, but if your pH levels are high, P test to see if you have some heavy metal or some other contaminant that's causing the issues. Let's talk about in terms of how things have changed these days and how much more data that we have at our disposal versus when, when the hobby first started. I mean, now ICP testing is something that um, I think you can call uh, somewhat common. It's, it's, it's readily available. It's not too expensive. But um, what, do you, what do you think? I mean, obviously you love... It, it uh, you're, it's obvious that you you um, embrace the data and, and um, you utilize the data and you act on the data. But I think there's also a lot of um, there's tendencies out there for some folks to perhaps overreact and and to um, tweak too many things at once. What what's your advice in terms of getting an ICP test and seeing a whole bunch of things that that have uh, you know red lights on them versus green lights and and acting on those red lights. Well, there's actually a, a lot of issues in what you're asking. First off, I like ICP testing, but I wish there was more consistency between the ICP testers. Uh, I have sent in multiple samples from the tank at the same time, and I've seen some things that weren't close to each other, which causes me to have some concern about the uh, veracity of what they're showing me. Two, some of the tests always show some crazy numbers, high levels of lithium, high levels of uh, manganese, high levels of, of different elements that, uh, A, I'm not adding into the, B, I, I don't know where they're coming from. Certain salts have different things in them. I've been using instant ocean salt for almost 40 years. I've never had a problem with it. Uh, I know at least 10 other people that I consider good reef keepers that also use it, so I don't think that's the issue. I, I do ICP tests, but I do ICT, ICP, ICP tests with a somewhat jaundiced eye in that I use them when there's a problem that I don't know or when I want to assess if something I'm doing has changed something. That is, when I, I, I uh, use Reef Moonshiner's trace elements, I started using them last March, and I use them based on what an ATI or another ICP test tells you, then you do a calculator 
and the calculator tells you exactly how much to add. So I had my baseline. I looked at them after a month. I looked at them after three months. I looked at them after six months. And I, I've adjusted and changed them as a result of these. Uh, from my point of view, it has done really nice things for the coloration and the health of my corals. Does that do that for everyone? I don't know. But I'm somewhat OCD and meticulous when I add these. I add 16 different trace elements from one to five milliliter every night at uh, 10 o'clock. So it's straight on. I know that you're going to do it. Or if you do it without assessing what your numbers are, because nothing is going to be consumed at the same rate. And what I mean by that is I used to add trace elements, and I did it somewhat haphazardly, and they were often in a combination. Add this group of trace elements, it'll bring up your red colors. Add this group, it'll bring up your purples. And it's a mixture of five or six things. Well, no one knows that everything's going to be consumed at the same rate or in the same ratio that's in these bottles. So from my point of view, it's kind of pointless to do that. When Andre came up with these individual elements, which I had seen his tank and saw several others that were doing it, I said, you know what, I'm going to try this. I have nice colored corals, but I don't have like blinding nice colored corals, at least to me. But I'm somewhat, I think everyone has nicer looking corals than I do. So that's another thing <laughs> I'm getting into. So when I, when I started doing this, uh, I started seeing an effect uh, about six to eight weeks later. I didn't see it overnight, which is the other thing that makes me laugh. When these people do something and they see something overnight in their tank. Uh, in 1986, I gave a lecture in Toronto. And at that lecture, that was the first lecture I gave, I made the quote, nothing good ever happens fast yeah. in a reef tank only bad things happen fast. i said and this is if you learn nothing else from my talk tonight understand that patience is going to take you a much longer way than spending a hundred bucks on a coral or spending 200 bucks on a light or getting the latest piece of technology being patient and not chasing numbers and that's one of the problems i have not just with icp testing but with the testing in general people see a number it's not where they want it to be they jump on it we got to change that tonight well, nothing good is going to happen with you changing it tonight. Uh, if I have to change anything, I plan on it taking two weeks to a month to change. The corals have gotten used to where you are. As I mentioned early on, Sanjay's corals are used to being blasted with light, like they're dry on the reef, high alkalinity, but they're used to it. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've brought corals home from Sanjay's. They go into my tank, they perish because my tank are not like Sanjay's. The same thing with Michael's. I've brought them to his tank. Psh, they're not used to getting blasted with his motto, okay, whatever lives, lives. Right. I don't keep them that way. So now I acclimate everything very slowly, uh, particularly with how expensive frags and everything else has gotten in this hobby. It pays for you to be patient. I have more corals in my tank right now than I ever imagined I would have. I'm going to have to start removing some because they're growing and getting so, excuse me, getting so big. I'm not trying to grow things out. I'm not in the frag business. I don't sell frags. I trade fr trade frags with people. People stop by. Oh, I like this. Okay. I mean, I'm old school. I mean, I've been giving people frags for the last 30 years. So it, it's not a big deal. But it's not chasing the numbers and not expecting a miracle overnight. Uh, I mean, no one ever goes to bed and there's a frag and they come down in the morning and there's a table call sitting there. But I've had a table core that was this big, and I came down, and there was a frag left. That's how this hobby is. And if you think of it any other way, 
what you should do is go over to somebody's house, take a video of their tank on your phone, and when you want to have see a tank and not have to do anything, put it on your TV <laughs> set and look at it. That'd be what I would suggest. You got to get your hands wet, but don't constantly be in a tank and don't chase numbers. That will drive you insane. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. I think another thing that um, I've always tried not to do is to, to make multiple changes at the same time, you know, and 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 the reason why I try not to do that is because if I make one change, then I kind of like know that change did have an impact over time versus a couple of changes. And you're like, well, okay, well, one of those things must have worked or maybe it was a combination. I don't know. Yeah, that's for the last 18 months, I did want to change one parameter and see what it did. Several of the parameters, several of the things caused bad effects within a week. Those ones were stopped. The good stuff rarely took a month. I would start to see something happening toward the end of a month, maybe two months. So it always takes time to, to, to see any kind of an effect. So we're, uh, we're at the top of the hour, Mike, and I want to keep you too much longer. I've, I've um, been trying to keep up with the chat, but folks, if, uh, if I missed any questions earlier in the chat, then um, um, put them out there again for, for us just so we can make sure that uh, we answer all the questions. I think there was a couple of more questions about the, uh, the bacteria. Um, John Reef from Vermont, um, was asking, does the vibro bacteria also feed on the same nutrients as the bacteria that process processes ammonia? Uh, no, Vibrio is a pathogenic bacteria. Uh, it causes cholera in humans, so it, it's basically everywhere, and it's not good anywhere. It's a it's a pathogenic bacteria to virtually anything it comes in contact with. Gotcha. Um, Let's talk, uh, Mike, about um, alkalinity monitors. That that seems like it's one piece of equipment that's made our lives as reef keepers easier the last uh, few years because alkalinity is so important. Um, yeah. What are, what are you you're using the Alcatronic, right? I'm using the Alcatronic, and I love it. I mean, it has saved me more times. I mean, it, my alkalinity fluctuates between 8.3 and 8.5 over the course of the day. It's pretty straight. I know exactly how much. And that's also how you see the alkalinity suddenly starts dropping down. That means they're consuming more. The alkalinity suddenly starts going up. Something I'm doing that the corals aren't happy with. And it shows you relatively quickly. So I can make adjustments accordingly. So that from that standpoint, I mean, I test every four hours. It sends it to my phone in the middle of the night. My light phone suddenly lights up uh, and it sends me alerts. And if it sends them to me in the middle of the night, I know uh -oh, there's something wrong. And... From my point of view, that has been, I don't use many other monitors. I mean, I don't have an Apex. I don't have other things to monitor. That's the one thing I want to monitor. That's why I have that. And it's very reliable. It's easy to calibrate. And it's worked for almost three years now. Do you use that to control or just to monitor? I just why don't, why don't you use it for controlling? You just uh, want to be able to make observations yourself and feel like you have more control over it? Right. I don't want to be too reliant on any technology because in when i'm away that's when the technology <laughs> will fail so as long as i can monitor it you know oh look it just shot you know i, I had uh, uh david saxby actually in england had a uh, denitrification filter and it kept his nitrates at five and if you ever saw david's tank which is one of the most spectacular yeah. tanks if not the most spectacular tank in the world i mean he probably has two thousand 500 colonies of uh, corals in a tank. And, I mean, they're just packed. And he had a uh, denitrification filter, 
and he was feeding it vodka every day. Well, the vodka bottle fell, <laughs> and it was a full bottle, and dumped the entire contents of vodka into the tank. He had a uh, gram-negative infection, gram-negative bacterial bloom in the tank that caused a gram-negative bacterial infection in virtually all the fish. Uh, the fish died in the most horrible ways possible. They had just literally like red welts all across. It was like someone had scratched them with wow. glass. It was, it was horrible. And it's all because a bottle fell because the technology was such he didn't have simplified where he would he add it into the thing and he just happened to knock it off. That's why I'm, I, I, I'm not a... That, that probably happened 10 years ago, and I, I'll never forget that because I was there soon thereafter, and the, the tank was bad, and it was the only time his tank has ever been bad. Well, no, actually, he's got to take it down four times. Oh, we won't God. get into that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I um, I use the uh, the GHL cage director, and I've, I've gone back and forth in terms of using the uh, the control controllability of that. And um, one reason, you know, when I, when I have not been using that, I the reason being is that uh, I like to look at the, the – data on a daily basis and if it's going down steadily then i know things are right because the corals are consuming you know the calcium and the alkalinity right. so i know things are heading in the right direction but if it's going up then all right well there might be something wrong with the tank and that's why you know in the past i haven't used the uh the control part of that but um i yeah that's exactly one of the reasons why it's later right and it gives you an indicator before it becomes a major problem. Right. And um, so I've, I've gone back and forth in terms of that. And I mean, you know, when I do have the control um, function going on, it keeps that DKH rock solid steady, which is great. But again, unless you're looking at the data yeah. in terms of what's being dosed on, um, you know, on that reactive basis, then you don't have the full picture. But it's, it's a nice thing to have. But I totally um, hear you in terms of not wanting to be um, too um, automated. Because that can be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, Sanjay lost his whole tank when he had his Apex on because they changed the software and it didn't give him the alert. And as a result, his uh, chiller went offline and became a heater and put his tank up to 94 degrees. This is like Mac like five or six years ago and wiped out his whole tank. So from my point of view, looking at automation is always, I want to be able to monitor, but I don't want it to, to do things. So I, I have also duplicate things like i can see temperature on two different things i can see ph on two different things i can only see alkalinity on one thing but i know that's reliable so we got a couple more questions uh mike um nelson lurian i don't know if i'm pronouncing that last name correctly but uh what 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 does mike think about amino acids do you use amino acids i have played with them off and on and i have quit using them when i started having uh, rtn stn problems because I started noticing I was losing frags every, I would dose it three times a week. I was starting to lose frags the day after I dosed it at night. So then I stopped dosing and I suddenly stopped you losing the frags. So it seems to be, if you don't have RTN, STN issues, it's something good. If you have even minor issues, it seems to feed those bacteria really, really well. Deep Reef is wondering, would you keep a tank without Miracle Mud? Uh... This tank is without Miracle Mud. The tank behind me doesn't well, have Miracle you're Mud. Problems All the other tanks tank, have though. Miracle Mud. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it, it's just that the sump is too small underneath it. That's the main reason. And it's just too hard to get things in and out of that tank. I may add a tray of Miracle Mud in the next couple of weeks. But 
just to see if that makes a difference. I'll take one of the trays from downstairs from the 500 and put it in here because it's already cultured and has all kind of stuff in it. And I'll see if that, if that improves things dramatically or keeps it the same or gets worse. So John Reef from Vermont is asking, we're back to the uh, bacteria topic here. So how would the nitrifying bacteria, the extra dosing of it, slow down the Vibrio bacteria? Uh, that won't slow down the Vibrio bacteria. What I, what I, you have to do is kill off the bacteria with an antibiotic, quote unquote. Uh, I've used witch hazel and Melifix when I've had real severe issues with RTN and STN. And I've dosed at relatively high dose because I had been at my wit's end. And that seemed to calm it down and settle it down. And that was also when I improved the pH and got the CO2 levels down. And then once I got that, that's when I started inoculating with the good bacteria, the BioDigest, the Dr. Tim's, the Tunze, and the Microbacter 7. So you have to kill it off and then replenish it with good bacteria. So I'm just looking through the, uh, the chat here again. All right, I'm going to go uh, to another question that I have. So you uh, you mentioned bryopsis, um, Mike. Have you had that in the past? And if so, what have you done to get rid of it? That's a tough one. Which was we What was weird is I had a bryopsis outbreak, but I only had it in my frag tank. It, in the frag tank, the nano tank, and the 500 are all interconnected with the same sump. I only had bryopsis in the frag tank. Hmm. And for the life of me, I, and, and when it exploded, it exploded. I mean, it went from one little strand to filling the tank seemingly in two or three days. And so what I did was I slowed the flow down, I shut off the lights, and I hit it with uh, Diflucan, which, believe it or not, is an antifungal that I sold against when I was in uh, pharmaceutical. So I knew all about it. And it was interesting how fast it worked. Uh, I usually say it takes three to five days. The next day, all the bryopsis was is gone. Is that similar? And when I say gone, there wasn't a strand of it anywhere. Is that similar to uh, fluconazole? Yeah. Okay. Fluconazole is a generic name. Gotcha. Um, question from St. Nova uh, to Mike. What par range does Mike aim for in terms of your SPS with your LEDs? Uh, for, it, it varies because not all SPS like the same. Most of my tenuous like 350, 400, a couple of them like Home Wrecker and a couple others like 500 and above. Uh, I try to be in the sweet spot between 350 and 500 in the tank. Sanjay runs some of his coils running at 1200 par. But like I said, <laughs> they got used to it and he has high nutrients and high everything else to keep them growing at 1200 par. I don't ever want to keep 1200 par. Uh, I know a couple other of my friends run seven to eight hundred par and have absolutely stunning, brilliantly colored corals. But like I said, my goal is not to grow corals so fast because I'm not in the fragging business. I'm letting everything grow nice and slow. And when things grow nice and slow together, they get to this close to each other. And then they have a demilitarized zone and they grow away from each other. They realize that battling each other is just a waste of energy. If you have them growing fast, it's like a collision and eventually they fight each other. So that's another reason why I run things slower. Uh, I don't need to, to blast the tank with par. You're running the uh, the Radeon 5s? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm running half Radeon 5s right now, half by okay. G4s. So Greg, uh, Greg Carroll is asking, um, what is the miracle in the mud? What do you think it uh, the, the secret is with miracle mud? I think it's a, a much more gradual release of a lot of odd trace elements. Like I said, uh, 
this tank had virtually nothing in it and bad live rock, the Miracle Mod, I think, replenishes a lot of the really super minor trace elements. It, it can't even be detected with an ICP test. I also think it's a great uh, spawning ground for microfauna. Worms, copepods, amphipods, little crabs, all kind of things. Over the years, I've seen more crazy things living in the mud than I've seen anywhere else in the tank. Um, and like I said, that guy in Italy that grew the plankton, his entire back sump was filled with three inches of miracle mud with calerp on top of it. And you could sit with a flashlight and look in his mud. There was more neat stuff living in his mud, and it was, it was Ling's miracle mud, than anything else I saw. And I have to assume that microfauna was also helping to, to feed the tank. And by feeding it with uh, phytoplankton, zooplankton, he was growing those other slightly higher level organisms. And as a result, everything in the tank was getting fed in a, a more natural manner. I mean, that's what my goal is of this next thing I'm playing with, to see if I can accomplish the same feat. So we have another question um, from Chili Wills Reef. Does taking sand out of an aquarium help with fighting dinos? What do you think? That's tough because dinos come from a, a zillion different reasons. I've had seen perfectly pristine, clean tanks get dinos, and I see tanks that look like sewage plants filled with dinos. So it, it's more to it than just the sand or just, it's still something we don't really understand what causes them and what causes them to just disappear. Although there is, uh, there was just an article that I read where they found that if they put the temperature of the tank over 80 degrees, the dinos all vanished. They don't like water over 80 degrees. You can't go much over mm -hmm. that, but at 80 degrees, all the dinos vanished from several tanks that they tried this on. So I'm not advocating this because I'm going by memory and I'm an old guy and I don't remember things quite but I read that in one of the, the uh, recent magazines, probably in the last week or two, or look up online the effect of temperature on dinos. Yeah, I've never heard that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I just read that uh, within the last week or two. Uh, whenever that once I had virtually every pathogen, parasite, everything you can imagine came through. I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm just moving to 300 to the 500. No, it was like stirring up a crypt in the uh, Egyptian pyramid. Every bad thing that was in there came out and was alive again and uh, flourished in the, in the new system. So even though you think, oh, I've done this before and I'm smart enough that this, no, it's still going to happen to you. So you got to be prepared for that. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, another question from Macy's daddy. Do you think blue light is better for coloring corals? How important is blue light, Mike? See, that, that's an interesting topic because Sanjay and I have fought about this and discussed this, this ad nauseum. If you look at Sanjay's tank every day, the corals are healthy. They're brightly colored. They're as, as colorful as any corals you'd see on a reef. I have been fortunate enough now to be there twice at night and got him to turn on all the blue lights like everybody loves. Mm -hmm. His corals blow away any other corals you have ever seen. <laughs> because they're one, they're this big, they're all huge colonies, and they're all multicolored under the blue light. So the blue light brings out the colors, but the colors are there. The blue light just brings it out so that you can see it. I mean, it's the same thing if you want to sit there with a pair of orange glasses on. You see a lot more colors that aren't there. The colors are always there. It depends on what pleases you. To, from my point of view, this is a hobby that you should have fun with. It's, it's not, you know, we're not solving uh, the world's crises 
It's something to sit back, relax, and enjoy. If you enjoy how brilliantly colored your corals are under blue light, go for it. If you like to grow corals real fast under white light, go for it. If you like white light during the day and then blue at night, which is what I do, I get the best of both worlds. My corals grow pretty much as fast as I want. I only run four hours of, of pretty much white light. The other eight hours is primarily blue and purple light. Why? Because that's the light I like in the early morning. And then they grow during the day and the tank looks really yellow to me. And then at night it gets bluer and bluer and bluer. And the last hour, it's just UV and purple on the tank. And then I have blue hands. <laughs> just like the blue colored uh, frags, right? That's right. And I mean, that's when the corals look like they do in the pictures online. And I go, okay, I get, this is that coral. <laughs> but the rest of the time, they're, they're nice looking corals, but they don't look like the pictures. And I couldn't look at those pictures all day. I wouldn't want to have blue, blue hands, hands all day. Yeah, you know, you know, something's up with that. So, Mike, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Um, one, one last question for me. You mentioned uh, patience being a big key in terms of having success in this hobby. What would you say are a couple other things that people should keep in mind in terms of, uh, you know, let's just keep it to um, SPS dominant reef tanks, or maybe you want to just cover reef keeping in general. But uh, it's, it, it, These are sort of general. One, find someone that you trust and that has a system and follow their system. Don't hybridize five or six systems, which I have been guilty of many times. <laughs> if you find something that works and someone that has it, go for it. Also, trust people that have done this for a while. I'm not saying this so you should trust me, but there's a lot of really, really good hobbyists that have done this four, six, eight, ten years. Those are the people to talk to. Those are the people to trust. And those are the people that generally will share their information if you're not obnoxious about it. Uh, anyone will, will share information if you ask. No one's going to say, hey, tell me everything about your tank. I want to grow corals and sell them against you. That, they're not going to tell you that. But if you ask, you know, how do you bring out your pinks? Uh, what does this do? Uh, be patient with them and, and have a conversation and, and ask, ask them more than, you know, just all the secrets of what they're doing with their tank. Uh, that goes a long way to find stores that you trust and support them. A local store is as crazy as some of them are. They're still a, a nice source and you should support them. I support a lot of online stores, but I also support the three stores that are around here. Why? Because when I need something at uh, 5 till 10 and I call them, hey, are you still open? Well, we're closing in five minutes. Hey, but I need this. And they stay open. It's worth it to me. Yeah. No, it's so important to support the local fish stores. It really is. Things uh, things have got to be tough in terms of the online world today for, for a local fish store. So they're the bread and butter, butter of the uh, of the hobby, I, I think. And, the, you know, very important and, piece. And lastly, spending a ton of money is not going to bring you happiness in this hobby. You can have... Just as nice a tank with a huge colony of, of red planet as you can with a multi-dimensional rainbow, whatever. Once you grow a nice, big, colorful colony, it's just as pleasing. And you can actually see it from across the room versus seeing these things that are six different colors, but you have to be this <laughs> close to it. It isn't going to bring you a lot of pleasure in the long run. So, I, I mean, I have a, a big bally slimer downstairs. It sits at the back of the tank. But you can see it from upstairs. I mean, it's big and it's green. But, it, I mean, Sanjay asked a question last week. Doesn't anybody keep blue corals anymore? No, because blue corals don't show up under blue light. <laughs> I still like blue corals. I still love Cali torts. I still love Oregon torts. I run daylight sometimes, and I have the bright blue corals. But this time of night, I have a lot of gray corals because they're blue. I uh, I agree 100%. I love... Um 
the uh, the Oregon Blue Tour is my favorite. I uh, I love you know the um, the pink of a, of a bird nest coral and the, uh, the the Green Valley Slammer the green stylophores are beautiful coral. I love solid bright colored corals, and those are not the uh, the in corals these days. But you gotta you know you, you mentioned this before. You gotta really you know do what you like to do in terms of what you prefer and what you like to see. It's a very personal thing, this hobby, and, um, you know, it's not always about the flavor of the day. Yeah, I mean, that's why I have five different tanks. I have a non-SPS, uh, non-acro SPS tank. I have a soft coral tank in there. I have a frag tank. I have an LPS tank, and then I have an acro tank. Each one's different. Each one has its own challenges. And why? Because I like them all. I, I can't have them all in one big tank because they just don't do all well together. I mean, it's even in the SPS, even in the acro tank, not all acros come from the exact same spot, like the same conditions. Some of them are going to do well. Some of them aren't. You, you have to accept that. I mean, like I have put probably 10 pink lemonades in that tank. None of them have ever survived. Oh, really? They do okay for a while and then psh, they disappear. Mm -hmm. Other corals, I have a paletta pink tip down there that was this big a year ago. It's now this big. Okay, it was sitting two inches from where the pink lemonade was. Okay, what's the magic of that two-inch spot? I have no idea. There's a lot of unknowns in this hobby, that's for sure. All right, Mike, a couple of real quick uh, rapid-fire questions for you. I think, our, uh, I think we already answered the first one. Uh, dream tank, is that 500 the dream tank? Yeah, mainly because the best tank I ever had was the 500 I had 15, no, now 18 years ago. That tank had corals that literally grew up to the surface, were big, beautiful. I grew most of them from frags. Uh, and then I said, oh, this isn't big enough. And I built, literally built myself a 1,200-gallon tank, built it in the garage. And that was a nightmare to maintain, mm. a nightmare to pay the electric bill on. Mm. Uh, it just wasn't. So I set up a 300 when I moved here after I got divorced. And that was a, a tank done as a rush. And that wasn't my dream tank. So my dream tank was to go back to the 500 and I literally spent a year designing this tank, making everything as smoothly and as easy as possible. Like the entire sump is away from underneath the tank. So when I want to work on something, it's there. Yeah. I don't have to be a 16-year-old gymnast to, to try and <laughs> manipulate stuff out of the tank. So I can get everything done quick and easy. I've made life easier for myself. I've made everything redundant. So there's everything can be changed and fixed quickly. And for me, this is the, the last ultimate tank. And when it grows in, it will be the ultimate yep, thing. Yeah, for sure. Favorite SPS coral? Paletta pink. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I did. I did not name that, and it's a, it, it, that's a, this is a crazy story that uh, most people don't know. I was writing an article on propagation in the early 1990s, and I was at one of the shows, and this guy comes up to me with a thick accent, which I didn't know where it was from, and said, "Can you write an article?" Uh, propagating stony corals and SPS corals just for me. I said, what do you mean just for you? What magazine? He goes, no, no, no. I want to show the people back in the Philippines that we can propagate corals. I said, yeah, I can do that. He says, give me your address. I'll send you some coral. <laughs> okay. I, I wrote an article for him on that. A couple weeks later, I get a box with four corals in it. They're, they're nice corals. They're all about the size of a fist. Nothing spectacular. Two blue or two brown. One's light blue. The other one's green. I put them in the tank. They, the, the brown ones stay brown. They don't really do anything. The blue one dies. But this green one, 
starts encrusting over like everything. I'm thinking, this, I've never seen a coral like this. It encrusted over everything. It went from the size of like a, a uh, golf ball encrusting to a, like a basketball wow. encrusting. Then all of a sudden it starts growing out and it's brilliant green with the most beautiful pink tips on it. This is under 400 watt metal halides. I gave probably 150 frags of it away. I never named it, but it got named the Paletta Pink Tip. And that, that's how, that's the only corals I know of that's from the Philippines. This is before they banned everything and everything yeah. else. I don't know how I got it. There was just a box. I tried to contact this guy. There was no trace <laughs> of him anywhere. I don't know if they threw him in the ocean Vanished. for talking how to propagate corals or what happened to him. But those that was how that coral came yeah, to you be. You got a winner there. All right, my last my last yeah. question. Favorite fish. Favorite fish? The fish one of the fish behind me is a uh, true Bodiana supercularis, a candy cane oh, hogfish. Nice. And I like I said, I have had fish since I was five years old. And my father has seen every fish and every tank I've had and has never said a single word about a tank, a fish, a coral, nothing. He is uh, totally oblivious. So he sits down at that end of the table when we have dinner here. And right after I got that, this fish, he looks at me and goes, wow, that's a really beautiful <laughs> fish. So just because that's the only fish he's ever noticed in 55 years, that's why that's there my you favorite go. fish. That's a good reason to be your favorite fish. Well, listen, Mike, I don't want to keep you any longer. This has been awesome. Really uh, appreciate it. I want to thank you on behalf of everybody that was tuning in, too. Just a, uh, a great chat, and hopefully we can uh, we can get you back on the show. Yeah, that sounds great. And if anybody has any questions or anything, they can always get in touch with me on Facebook. Super. That's the All easiest right. way. So, again, Mike, thanks so much. And I just wanted to um, remind everybody I'm going to be on again next Thursday, February 4th. And i got another great guest. It's going to be Jake Adams from Reef Builder. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do that again on uh, 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on Thursday. Until then, everybody, be safe, be well, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Say hi to Jake for me. <laughs>